0: He knows his stuff, and sure enough, it's shooting the Bull with Tom Snow. Hi everybody, and welcome back to Shooting the Bull with Tom Snow. I'm your host, Tom Snow. And we're I'm going to be doing something new with this episode. So I'm going to be re-recording my series of America's Forgotten Wars. As many of you know, that was one of the early podcast episodes that I was doing, or the early podcast series I was doing, and listening to them over again, um, I can tell they were one of my first projects doing a podcast, and I feel like I could have gone to more detail and just kind of done a better job with some of the episodes. So now that I have a little more experience under my belt, I'm going to go back and re-record some of these episodes and try to give you a bit more detail about these, American, for- these forgotten wars in American history, all right? So we're going to get started with episode number one, and that was, if you remember, the Quasi-War. All right, so let's start with some background facts. The Quasi-War was fought between the United States and France between 1798 and 1800. So despite being one of America's most forgotten wars, the Quasi-War played a very important role in our country's history, and it is worth remembering. There are three reasons why I think it's worth remembering. First, it was the first international conflict that the United States fought with another country. It also led to the establishment of the United States Navy and the United States Marine Corps. Finally, it established a precedent where the president of the United States could authorize military action without actually asking for a declaration of war. There have been only five times in our country's history where the President of the United States has asked Congress for a declaration of war. Those were the War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, the Spanish-American War, World War I, and World War II. Other conflicts, such as the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Iraqi War, they've been the result of the President basically authorizing military action without asking Congress for a declaration of war. The Quasi-War established that president, and we're going to learn more about that in this episode. So the story of the Quasi-War basically starts with the end of the American Revolution. So after the American Revolution, the United States of America completely disbanded its military. It sold off the few remaining warships it had in its navy and disbanded most of the army. It kept a few hundred guys just to kind of protect the, um, the frontier from Native Americans and highwaymen and whatnot. But essentially, by the end of the Revolutionary War, the United States did not have a functioning military. And that's because the people of the United States hoped to stay completely isolationist and believed that it would never have to fight another war in its entire history. Now, that sounds kind of naive today, but Americans just did, thought they could stay out of other people's business. And also, they did not want a permanent army or navy. They did not want a professional army or navy, in other words. They thought they could rely 100% on state militias, which were basically citizen soldiers. So America's pipe dream of internal peace was interrupted when when the French Revolution broke out. So the French Revolution began in 1789, six years after the end of the American Revolution. The French people overthrew their government and beheaded their king and queen, King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. At first, most people in America were kind of happy because our former ally, the people who the country that helped us win the American Revolution, were also becoming a republic like ourselves. As the French Revolution progressed, however, it became more violent. As over sixteen thousand men, women, and children were executed in the streets. They were executed by something called a guillotine, which was a device that basically chopped off somebody's head. So it was pretty, pretty nasty. Some people in America, including Thomas Jefferson, believed that France was going through a rough patch and needed our support. Others, like Alexander Hamilton, thought the United States should have nothing to do with the French and improve relationships with the English. Things got worse when most of Europe, including Great Britain, declared war on the French. The United States initially thought it could stay out of it. After all, there is an ocean that separates the United States of America and Europe. However, the United States and France had a treaty of alliance that dated back to the American Revolution. The treaty stated that both countries would support each other if one of them was attacked. In other words, if America was attacked by Britain, France would come to the aid of the Americans. And if France was attacked by the British, America would come over on the side of the French. The French ambassador showed the treaty to President Washington, and he expected that the Americans would declare war on Great Britain. Washington, however, showed the treaty to his cabinet and asked for their advice. Hamilton pointed out that the treaty was signed by King Louis XVI, and since he had been executed and his government had been overthrown, the treaty was no longer valid. Washington agreed with this and told that to the French ambassador, French ambassador, excuse me, who was not surprisingly very upset. He kind of felt like the Americans were stabbing him in the back. Things would continue to get worse from here. In 1794, the Americans signed a trade agreement with the British known as the Jay Treaty, named after Ambassador John Jay. The treaty gave the British favorite nation status in the United States, which essentially made them America's number one trading partner. You might be asking, why is America giving Great Britain favorite nation status as opposed to the French? After all, we just fought a revolutionary war with the British with help from the French. In the eyes of people like Alexander Hamilton and important people in American politics, Great Britain was just a much more stable country than France. France was in the midst of a very violent revolution, while Great Britain was not. Great Britain also just had more demand for American goods than the French. And finally, a lot of people in America wanted to kiss and make up with the British after the Revolutionary War. Remember, people in America and Britain, they, a lot of them had friends and family in Britain. Uh, the Americans and British spoke the same language, had the same religion, a lot of common beliefs. And most, very few people in America wanted to stay enemies of Great Britain after the Revolution. A lot of them wanted to kind of become for, back to having a solid relationship with the British and eventually move closer to the British as opposed to the French. So the, once the French heard about the Jay Treaty, they were even more pissed off. So they kind of felt like as if their their best friend was starting to date their ex. And they started to retaliate as well. So in 1796, the French authorized privateers, which is basically a legalized pirate, to capture any American merchant ship that was trading with their enemies. Since France was at war with all of Europe, this basically meant that any American ship not trading with the French was subject to capture. Between October of 1796 and June 1797, over 300 American merchant ships were captured by the French. Shipping losses were estimated between 12 to $15 million. In today's currency, that's around $250 million lost within the span of about nine months. In response, newly elected President John Adams sent three diplomats to negotiate a peace treaty with the French. The diplomats met met with three French agents who introduced themselves as Agents X, Agents Y, and agent Z. In what would become known as the XYZ Affair, the French told the American ambassadors that the U.S. would have to pay a substantial bribe just to talk to the French. The French argued that the Americans were a weaker country and had to literally pay their respects to the French before the French would even listen to their demands. The Americans were understandably outraged. One of the Americans told the French that the U.S. was willing to pay, quote, millions for defense, but not one cent for tribute. So that there goes the whole idea of America never having to fight another war in its entire history. So President John Adams supported his ambassador and set, asked Congress to dramatically increase American military spending. In 1798, Congress authorized President Adams to defend American commerce through military force if necessary. Adams responded by authorizing American warships to capture any armed French vessel, Navy, or privateer it encountered in American waters. However, Adams did not ask for a declaration of war, as he did not want the conflict to escalate beyond this. Now, this kind of goes into how... This war started a precedent that the president could authorize military combat without a declaration of war. And here's here's what happened. Adams wanted this to be a defensive war only. His only objective was to protect American merchant ships from French privateers. Fighting a few French, French privateers was a lot different than going to war with all of France. He did not want the French sending troops to invade America or American ships fighting the French in European waters. He hoped that if the Americans stayed on the defensive and did not provoke the French any further, the French would not escalate the conflict either. A lot of people in America argue that the president still needed to ask Congress for a declaration of war to do this. However, the Supreme Court said that Adams was what Adams was doing was totally legal, and the Constitution stated that the president could use the military for defensive measures at his own discretion. I'm kind of simplifying things a little bit, but basically that is what happened. So like I said, the president authorized the Navy to capture French warships, but there is one problem. The Americans did not have a Navy. Back in 1794, President Washington had authorized the construction of six frigates to basically act as the backbone of a new United States Navy. A frigate was a medium-sized warship in the age of sail. It was basically the equivalent of a cruiser in a modern-day Navy. Anyone that is familiar with the game of battleship, a cruiser is one of the ships with three pegs on it. A frigate was a ship with three masts, um, carried between 20 to 50 guns on one or two decks. If anybody's ever seen the USS Constitution in Boston, that is an excellent example of a frigate in the age of sail. In fact, the U.S.'s constitution was one of those six frigates that was authorized by George Washington. By 1798, however, none of the six frigates had been completed, and only three of them were near completion. So three of them were almost ready for launch, and the other three were still being built. To remedy this problem, John Adams established the Department of the Navy and appointed a man by the name of Benjamin Stoddard to act as First Secretary of the Navy. Benjamin Stoddart was a Revolutionary War veteran and had a, and was a successful merchant who had experience managing a large fleet of cargo ships, and that made him a pretty good candidate for the position. So Stoddard was able to complete all six of the frigates within a year and then set out to acquire new ships through various different methods. The first thing he did, he purchased several merchant ships and converted them into warships. Now, this was good if you needed a warship on the quick, but a merchant ship did not always make a good warship. A merchant ship was designed to carry as many goods from one place to another. They tended to be very slow and kind of very fat, so they can store as many goods as possible. And they were not as strongly built as a warship because they were not designed to take as much cannon damage as a warship so they they were a quick fix but not a permanent fix he also borrowed many revenue cutters from the treasury Department. so the revenue cutters were the predecessor of the modern day coast guard cutter they were very small warships they could probably carry like four or six guns they were fast they were designed to capture smugglers or ships that were smuggling illegal cargo into the united states They were, so they had a little bit more of a military purpose than a merchant ship. They were probably pretty good at attacking small French privateers, but they would not be good against like a a French naval frigate or something like that. So, at the end of the day, Stoddard went out to buy, to purchase and build some new warships that could actually fight a French warship. He awarded government contracts to private shipbuilding yards in the United States that built actual warships for the US Navy. And he also asked the citizens of cities along the East Coast to build warships for the Navy. This might seem kind of odd, but a lot of people in cities along the East Coast did actually build warships and donated them to the Navy. An example, in Philadelphia, where I live, the citizens of Philadelphia raised enough money to build a 36-gun frigate for the United States Navy. A 36-gun frigate was actually rather large. The Constitution was a 44-gun frigate. So the ship that the citizens of Philadelphia built was just slightly smaller than the Constitution. They named their warship the USS Philadelphia. And the reason that they did this is because, remember, most of these people living in cities like Philadelphia, New York, and Boston, they were actually merchants. And a lot of them had lost ships to these French privateers. So they thought by raising some money in, for building warships for the government, they were in effect, buying their own defense. And they thought it was a price worth paying. A few other examples, um, the citizens of the towns of Salem and Marblehead in uh, Massachusetts built the 32-gun frigate USS Essex. The people of Boston built the 28-gun frigate USS Boston. The people of New York City built the 36-gun frigate USS New York. The people of Charleston, South Carolina, built the 28-gun USS John Adams. Uh, other, another town, I forget which one it was, built the 28-gun USS Adams. So there are two ships called the Adams or John Adams. This is the Baltimore, built two smaller warships, the USS Maryland and the USS Patapsco. And these ships were actually warships. So they were able to support the six frigates and kind of give the United States a larger fleet of warships. And so Stoddard's mission was very successful. The United States Navy went from having six ships in 1798 to 54 ships in 1800. So now that the Americans have some actual warships, the Navy's gonna start fighting back. Initially, President Adams wanted Stoddard to have the Navy patrol off the American coast but Stoddard had other ideas, and he ordered his ship to patrol in the Caribbean. Stoddard knew that most of the French privateers operated out of islands in the Caribbean, and he thought if the Americans attacked the French in their own waters, the French would be put on the defensive and thus unable to send privateers to blockade American ports. This is a good example of a good defense being a good offense. While this might sound like a risky strategy, Stoddart knew that most of the French Navy was too fighting. Was too busy fighting the British in Europe to offer a lot of support to the French privateers in the Caribbean. And most of the French ships that the Americans would be up against were just privateers and not actual warships. So let me explain what a privateer is. So a privateer, again, is a legalized pirate. They tend to be very small, lightly armed vessels, probably carrying somewhere between like two to four to six guns. They were really good at attacking unarmed merchant ships and plundering cargo. They were not good at fighting an actual warship from a country's navy. Nine times out of ten, if a privateer found an actual warship, they would just simply run away. The crews were also nowhere near as well-trained or disciplined as the crew of a naval ship. They did not really practice stuff like gunnery drills or target practice. They would spend their time drinking, gambling, womanizing, Basically leisurely stuff. They were not in actual professional fighting units. And this is actually good practice for the American Navy. They were not going up against a powerful Navy like the British Navy, like they did in the Revolutionary War. They were going up against a few badly trained French privateers. Between 1798 and 1800s, the American Navy did very well. The Navy captured or sank a total of 86 French privateers while losing only one ship of their own at the same time the number of american merchant ships dramatically uh, american the number of american merchant ships captured by the french dramatically decreased and as the war progressed the american sailors and marines became much better at fighting and were better trained and could stand up against let's say a french warship so the american navy is getting really good later in the war however the french navy did send a few actual warships to deal with the americans in the caribbean Now, this is going to be a big test for the American Navy, which at this point had never fought the Navy of another country before. In the American Revolution, the American Navy did not do super well. Nearly all the ships it built were either captured or destroyed by the British, and it did not win a single battle without the help of the French. So most people in other countries, specifically the British and the French, had very low expectations of the American Navy. Many of them thought the Americans were going to get wiped out by the French fleets. However, they would end up being wrong. A good example of this came on February of 1799, when the American frigate Constellation encountered the French frigate insurgent. The Constellation is one of the first six frigates built by George Washington. The Constellation carried 38 guns, most of which were 24 pounders, meaning it could fire a cannonball that weighed 24 pounds. The insurgent carried 40 guns, so a few more than the Constellation. However, most of the insurgent's guns were 12 or 18 pounders, meaning they could fire a cannonball weighing 12 or 18 pounds. The insurgent initially thought the Constellation was a British frigate and ran away. Once it realized the Constellation was an American ship, however, it decided to turn around and engage, thinking the Constellation was going to be a much easier target. So the two ships opened fire at each other, and here's how the battle went. The American sailors aimed for the insurgent's hull, hoping to destroy the ship's guns and kill as much of her crew as possible. The French sailors aimed high. They aimed for the the constellation's mast and sail, hoping to cripple the constellation. By crippling the Constellation's the the French sailors could sail the insurgent into a position where they could fire into the Constellation, but the Constellation could not fire back at them. However, the American gunnery was much more accurate than the French gunnery. And as a result, the sailors of the Constellation were able to destroy most of the insurgents' guns before the insurgent can really do any significant damage to the Constellation's sails and masts. The French French captain realized that defeat was inevitable and surrendered his vessel. The insurgent was then repaired and taken into the American Navy as the USS insurgent. The Constellation's victory over the insurgent was the first time an American ship captured an enemy ship of equal force in combat. The Americans actually never really did that in the Revolutionary War, so this is a, a big boost for American morale. The following year, the Constellation encountered another French frigate. This one's called the Vengeance. Let's compare the two ships real quick. As we discussed, the Constellation carried 38 guns and the Vengeance carried 54 guns. Again, as in the previous battle, most of the Vengeance guns were weaker than the Constellation's cannons. As in the last battle, the French sailors aimed for the Constellation's masts while the Americans aimed for the Vengeance's cannons in whole. Um, The battle was fought at night and lasted nearly three hours. The American gunnery was faster and more accurate. At one point, the French ship actually tried to surrender by raising a white flag, but the Americans could not see it in the dark and kept fighting. Finally, the French captain asked for mercy, and this time the Americans stopped fighting. It looked like the Americans had finally won another victory. As soon as the battle ended, however, one of the Constellation's three masts fell down, which crippled the ship temporarily. The Vengeance took advantage of this and escaped into the night. However, it had to sail back to France for repairs and would miss the rest of the war. So while the Constellation did not capture the French ship, it still achieved its main objective of taking it out of the war. So let's kind of wrap up this episode by talking about a few other battles and then seeing how the war ended. So, late in the war, the Americans won a third ship-to-ship battle when the 32-gun American frigate Boston captured the 24-gun frigate Berçoise. In another battle, the American frigate Constitution, later known as Old Ironsides, chased a French privateer called the Sandwich into a French port and eventually captured her in a rather interesting fashion. So, the crew of the Constitution commandeered a local trading vessel and sailed her into the French harbor disguised as a French fishing boat. It anchored right next to the Sandwich, at which point point a 100 American sailors boarded the French ship and captured her. At the same time, American Marines from the Constitution landed on shore and destroyed the fort that was guarding the harbor, which allowed the Americans to get away. In another battle, American Marines helped French, oh, sorry, Dutch colonists at the island of Surico repel a French invasion. So we're starting to see that the American Navy Marines are going a bit above and beyond their orders of simply protecting American merchant ships. But no one in America said anything because at that point we were winning the war. In 1800, Napoleon Bonaparte proclaimed himself Emperor of France, which ended the French Revolution. Napoleon Bonaparte did not want to fight a naval war with the United States because he needed all of his warships to fight the larger British Navy. He therefore signed a peace treaty with the United States, which promised to stop attacking American merchant ships. The Americans therefore achieved their main objective of the conflict and can call the Quasi War a win. I want to do a quick recap of the Quasi War, which was important for three different reasons. It was the first war with a foreign power that the United States fought all by itself without the help of any allies. And it was actually a pretty easy first war for the Americans to fight as they only had to fight some poorly trained French privateers and a few smaller French warships. It also led to the establishment of the United States Navy Marine Corps, and we saw how the Americans built their first Navy through the construction of six frigates, converting some revenue cutters and merchant ships into warships, and asking citizens in towns to build warships for the Navy. It also established a precedent where the President of the United States could authorize military combat without actually declaring war on a country. And that kind of ends this episode of Shooting the Bull with Tom Snow. I hope you guys found this episode interesting and look forward to talking to you next time when we discuss another one of America's Forgotten Wars. He knows his stuff and sure enough it's Shooting the Bull with Tom Snow.